that was being spent on the criminal justice system and being spent on, on the, the drug law enforcement, they reinvested all of that into health, into drug treatment, into good drug prevention, into good drug education, and into harm reduction services. And that's just as much, that's equally as important as the actual change of the law itself. They rebalanced and reconceived their approach. That was followed more recently by Bolivia. Now, Bolivia, coca chewing, the chewing of coca leaf or the consumption of coca leaf is a, a commonplace thing in Bolivia. It's a, a traditional cultural thing that is done, has various benefits and various uses in Bolivian culture. But, it, but coca leaf is banned by the United Nations conventions. So Bolivia have been, have been trying to fight this, and they, they've been trying for ages, they tried for ages to get coca leaf taken out of the conventions, or to get the conventions updated um, so that they could be allowed to use coca leaf. And here we have the President Morales, who came to the United Nations meeting in Vienna, gave this fantastic presentation with all these coca products lined up in front of him. And then at the end of the presentation, took a wad of coca leaf out of his mouth and said, if I'm a drug user, arrest me. And that was amazing to have him do that. And what Bolivia ended up doing, because the United Nations just didn't listen, they would not change. The, the international drug control system would not change. So Bolivia left it. Bolivia withdrew from the conventions and then re-signed up one year later with a kind of asterisk at the bottom saying, we agree with all of that, but not coca leaf. That's, that's completely allowed within United Nations Convention law. And Bolivia were the first ones to really do it. Then we have America. The, the drug warriors, the ones who first coined the phrase war on drugs and have been fighting it the strongest. But now in America, we have regulated legal cannabis markets in a number of states. And that number's only going to get bigger. We believe California could well be next. Um, and that's really significant because that's put the US government in a very difficult position because how can you be the major uh, kind of uh, advocate for the kind of punitive prohibition approach, the war on drugs, and at the same time be in violation of the treaties inside your own borders. It's put them in a very difficult position and their response to it has kind of just been to bury their heads in the sand a little bit and just to go a bit quiet, which is fine. Um, next slide, please. Uh, going a step further, Uruguay became the first country to create a legal cannabis market, regulated Care, very carefully regulated legal cannabis market in Europe. Next slide. Um, the Global Commission on Drug Policy, I don't know if anyone here has ever come across this commission with Richard Branson and Kofi Annan and other high-level individuals. They, they really helped to kind of raise the profile of the issue, um, particularly with former presidents in their, in their ranks and the former Secretary General of the United Nations. They've really helped to kind of bring this debate forward and get people talking more about the failed war on drugs. And the latest development, or the one that is kind of happening as we speak, is that the United Nations themselves are beginning to get on message. We now have explicit guidance and very clear statements from the World Health Organization, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, the United Nations Development Programme, and UNAIDS, the HIV AIDS program, explicit recommendations saying that we have to decriminalise drug use. Because if we, treat these, if we treat people who use drugs as criminals, that is having a huge impact and we cannot end HIV AIDS. We cannot tackle this epidemic if at the same time we're massively increasing the risks to a certain group of people. 
So that's kind of the young gas and why the young gas is happening now. And the young gas in itself is just a meeting. You know, it's just going to be a load of countries coming together. There's going to be some bits of it that are very frustrating. Um, there's going to be some bits of it that are very exciting, even in a slightly geeky way. Um, but it's just a meeting. But what it is, is it's a signpost. It's a, sh it's a sign that, that this debate is happening and it's gathering pace. And so what is the alternative? Well, I mean, it's already been alluded to, but the alternative is about us having more balance in our drug policy. The existing conventions are there to protect health, to protect welfare, but the focus in the last 50 years has been almost exclusively on law enforcement and criminal justice. And that's what we need to rebalance. So all the members of IDPC, the 140 plus members that we have, they all subscribe to these basic policy principles, which we believe are the, the building blocks of a good drug policy. They have to be based on the evidence rather than based on ideology. They've got to be compliant with human rights law. They've got to focus on reducing the harm of drugs instead of focusing just on reducing the scale of drug markets. So, for example, if, if there's a way to reduce the harm of the drug market, even if the actual overall size of the market stays the same, but it just becomes safer, then that's a, that is a very valid policy goal. Much more valid than seeking a drug-free world, regardless of the harms. It's got to promote social inclusion of vulnerable groups, you know, pe vulnerable people who are labelled, widely labelled, widely stigmatised, demonised as dirty drug users. You know, we have to change this narrative. We've got to change this rhetoric and stop treating these people with such contempt. And we've got to do this in conjunction with civil society. I mean, obviously, as an NGO, we would say that. And for the UNGAS specifically, for us, I mean, we're very realistic about the limitations. When it comes to drug control, the United Nations makes all its decisions by consensus. Okay, now I don't know if any of you have ever, even in a room of 10 people, tried to find consensus, but it can be very tricky. And with 192 countries, all it takes is, is a handful of countries to be very resistant to any change, and it very much limits the whole debate. And that's the reality of the United Nations uh, drug debate at the moment. But still, even if the, the, the kind of final declaration might not be as progressive as we want, the thing we want from the young gas is that it's an open debate where other countries can put things on the table. Where Uruguay can come and say, look what we've done. Look what we've done and it's working. Portugal can come and say, look what we've done and look at the success we've had over the last decade. We need an opportunity for countries to be able to talk about this more openly. We've got to reset the objectives. It can't be a drug-free world by 2020 or a drug-free world by 2025. It's never going to happen. And it's dangerous to think that way. We've got to support the new approaches, such as the regulation of drugs, as, as, as Danny alluded to. But we've, and we've got to end criminalisation of drug users, because it's serving no one any purpose. We've got to ensure proportionate penalties and end the death penalty. I mean, this, the death penalty for me is like the, 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 the most extreme example of the war on drugs. I mean, I'm against the death penalty in any use. I think it's completely abhorrent. But even under international law, for those countries that retain the death penalty, it can only be used for the most serious crimes. That's the wording they use, most serious crimes. Drug trafficking is not one of the most serious crimes that a person can commit. And the death penalty should never be applied for that. And then as, as I've alluded to before, as Portugal had done, for example, 
part of this rebalancing the approach, it's not just narrative, it's not just the wording that we use, it's also the funding. We have nowhere near enough funding at the moment for drug treatment, for health services, for harm reduction services. But the needs, the global needs for these services pale into insignificance compared to the sheer amount of money that's spent on law enforcement. If we were able to just shift just 10% of the law enforcement budget towards a health response instead, we could have a huge impact on this problem and really start to look at some concrete solutions. So what does the future hold then? I mean, where we are now, we're seeing a trend where the, the general public awareness and the understanding of the, of the war on drugs and the failure of the war on drugs, that's increasing. I think people are, are gradually getting that message. And I see that everywhere, everywhere we go. You know, IDPC, we work in Africa, in Asia, in, in Latin America, and in Europe. And uh, yeah, we're really seeing this, this move. People are beginning to get this message and this, this kind of simplistic narrative of oh, all ban all drugs and then the problem goes away. People are beginning to realize that it just doesn't work like that. As I mentioned, the UN debate continues to be quite frustrating at times, but it is still moving forward. And the, the key thing, the, the key angle we can take on this is around what we call system-wide coherence. Because if you've got the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, I mean, that's crucial in itself, it's drugs and crime. You know, not drugs and health, but drugs and crime. But if you've got the UNODC supporting a war on drugs that directly impacts on the work that UNAIDS and WHO are trying to do, or directly impedes the work that UNDP are trying to do. That's when we've got to start getting, we've got to highlight that tension, and we've got to start getting them talking to each other so they can come to an agreement on the best way to deal with this problem. Because you can't have one whole pillar of the United Nations completely undermining the core pillars, as, as Danny represented. We're going to see increased defections from the system. Bolivia is one example for, you know, when, when a country just takes action, a country kind of thinks enough's enough, we can't go on with this. And that's really important because, as I, as I know down there below, I, I believe the change is going to happen in countries rather than at the United Nations. Well, the United Nations will change, but that change will follow what happens in countries. They'll change when they have to, when, when you get to a kind of um, a tipping point. Of, of countries taking another path. And that's really important for me, and I think that's the way it's, it's kind of panning out at the moment. And the key thing for me, like a lot of the reforms that I mentioned today, and a lot of the reforms that are happening, focus on cannabis. And there's advantages to that. You know, cannabis is, at the moment it's scheduled as like one of the most harmful drugs in the world, and a drug with no medical purposes. That's how the United Nations classifies cannabis. And they've classified it like that since the 1960s, and they've refused to do any kind of review of that decision. They've never done an evidence-based review. They've never looked at the evidence on cannabis. So it's there, for the, it's there to be picked off. It's there for the taking in terms of like a drug which I think most people would agree is not the most harmful drug in the world. But it's crucial that it doesn't end there. A world in which cannabis is legalized, but heroin and cocaine and ecstasy and LSD and magic mushrooms and ketamine are illegal, it's not going to solve the problems that we need to solve. So it's very important that cannabis is a, is a great start. And we, we've had debates on this within the sector. You know, is, it, is that the be-all and end-all, or is that just the thin end of a wedge? And I would very much advocate that we use it as a thin end of a wedge, because these problems are not going to be addressed until we re overhaul the entire system. And that brings me on to the last point there. I mean, ultimately, 
the change can only be secured when we actually change the United Nations Drug Conventions. They've done this before, albeit a long time ago. There's so much resistance to doing this now. Even amongst countries that we consider our allies, the Netherlands and Portugal and others, they don't want to touch the drug conventions. They're just, it, there's comfort in the status quo, I think. And it's easier just to try and live with something rather than actually make it fit for purpose. But we have to keep challenging that. And eventually, they are going to have to... They either, I mean, they've got a choice. They either change or they become redundant. That's basically the choice the United Nations has. And we've got to try and advocate for it to change. So, just a, a few examples, because the reason that Danny and I, for example, and you know, HPA, the reason that we're here is to try and talk to new audiences and try and get people to understand the, the war on drugs and, and get you engaged and hopefully slightly <coughs> angry about this issue. And there's lots of ways you can get engaged. I mean, IDPC, as I say, we're a global network, so we welcome membership requests. We, we, we welcome, you can go on our website and sign up to the newsletter and just keep in touch with the movement that way. Um, there's also United Nations uh, system set up for civil society engagement, the Vienna NGO Committee and the New York NGO Committee, which I want to keep calling NINGDOC, but no one's listening. No one to, I, think, I think that's a great acronym, NINGDOC. Anyway, so um, yeah, so the Vienna and, and New York NGO Committees, again, they're, they're groups that you can join that allow you to be part of this discussion. And as we've said, we really need the, the development sector and the health sector to be more prominent in this discussion. It's really important that we get the same message coming from all sectors. And part of that is building alliances with drug policy groups. Um, and that's what Transform IDPC, HPA, that's what we all do and that's what we're here to help with. But also, I'm, I'm consciously aware that a lot of you will have good connections with government albeit maybe different connections from the ones we have, but good connections. And again, it's about using these connections, getting this message out there, and trying to, trying to get this debate to really happen, in the UK as, you know, as well as internationally. And then the final one, and this is really a call to MEDACT. I don't know, is there anyone actually in here from MEDACT? Like, from the Secretariat, or? No, okay. Is anyone a member of MEDACT in here? Okay. So I'm targeting you as a proxy. <laughs> but no, but, but one of the things, for example, a very practical thing that can happen is for the young gas, there's a mechanism where NGOs and, and civil society groups can make submissions, can, can place on the record what they, the way they view the war on drugs and the changes they want to see made. And there's not enough on there at the moment from health sector NGOs. It'd be great to see MEDACT agree a position and, and formally submit it to this process. Um, and I'm happy to follow up with whoever I need to follow up on that one. And I just want to quickly plug uh, another one of our members, um, Danny mentioned them earlier, the International Doctors for Healthier Drug Policies. Um, I just want to plug them because they're specifically targeted at getting this health sector voice more prominent in the drug policy world. So please do visit their website. Sebastian, can you give everyone a wave? Sebastian, over back there. Sebastian's the executive director of IDXPP. You guys have got a, a stand downstairs, a table downstairs? Brilliant. So if you get a chance over the next day and a half, please do go and visit and, and you know, uh, learn a bit more about what IDXDP do. And then, just my last slide quickly, the other thing I just wanted to plug um, is a campaign that IDPC has helped to, to launch called Support Don't Punish, um, which basically was aimed to try and capture the, the message that we're trying to get across. You know, the, the, the war on drugs is taking the wrong approach. We need to actually take another approach 
where we offer support and help and guidance and health rather than locking people away and hoping that that solves the problem. Um, and if you go on the campaign, there's a very simple way that you can take part. We have a photo project um, where you can just uh, take a photo with the campaign logo, as these people have here, um, including Richard Branson, um, and send that to us. And then it's almost like a photo petition. We currently have around 7,000 photos from around the world. Um, not 7,000 people, because two of them are cats. Um, but 7,000 photos from around the world. Cats about it, they have a say. Um, uh, yeah, so 7,000 photos from around the world. But I, again, you know, if this is an issue that you're interested in and you're here, which is great, so thank you. Um, if this is a, an issue that you, you're interested in and you want to engage in, again, this is one of the mechanisms alongside capital costs and, and lots of other campaigns on this sector. This is a way that you can become involved in this and hopefully join the movement that, uh, that is building. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Jamie. I think amazingly we've run to time, so thank you. <laughs> um, and that means we've got a full 20 minutes for a Q&A, so I hope you've all got some interesting questions lined up for our panel. Um, perhaps if people could stand up um, and I can pass the microphone around here, or if we can't hear you, I can pass the microphone out to the floor. Um, in the purple jumper there, do you want to stand up yeah. and give your question? Uh, yeah, hi. Um, really interesting talks, and I agree with a lot with a lot of what you've said. It seems to make a lot of sense. But I'd just be interested to know um, the impact of some of these policies, for example, in Portugal. Um, what impact has it actually had on health, and what impact has it had on the criminal element of kind of drugs, um, drug cartels, etc. Mm -hmm. Anyone start? You want to take a few? Or? Uh, yeah, we can take more? it. Maybe if we start. If has anyone else got any questions right now? Yeah, lady at the back. Uh, hi there, my name's Hannah and I work for Safe World, which is a conflict prevention and mass building organisation. And we do some work around this issue, although it's not really my area of expertise. My sense is that a lot of politicians and policy makers know that legalisation is the way forward and, and regulations the way forward. It's just not politically acceptable to say it. Um, and like, I've had conversations, for example, with people from the World Bank who will say privately that their research all shows that legalisation and regulation is the way forward and yet they won't say it publicly, which I guess demonstrates that policy is not based on evidence <laughs> of what works. Um, so I just wondered if you had any thoughts around like how do we how do we change this political culture which says that you know it's a crazy leaving left suggestion um, to actually look at the evidence and do what we know works. Okay. One more and gentleman from here. Yeah, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Michael Lorgal and I've been a member of MedAct since the mid-80s, and, well, it was originally the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. So I'm thrilled that MedAct at least allowed a conference about drug policy. I worked in the addiction field uh, from the mid-70s in San Francisco at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, and then into the belly of the beast at the Maudsley, uh, drug treatment provision providers, and I went to the first international harm reduction <coughs> conference. Now I'm retired from the NHS. I'm devoting uh, some of my energies to working against nuclear weapons. I'll get to my question, which is: in the run-up to 2016, it's great that there's these coalitions and so many NGOs looking at policy change. But I would predict, correct me if I'm wrong, that the UK 
and the U.S., despite lots of innovative work around harm reduction and safe, better drug policies, are going to be some of the blockers, mm -hmm. not the enablers of big changes. Not unlike, I make an analogy now with uh, uh, the, the small number of countries that have nuclear weapons uh, and the 120 countries that want to ban nuclear weapons. So what's the way forward in the UK and the US? Okay, thank you for the questions. Uh, so firstly on the kind of issue of the politics and the, uh, I think it was transformed first, introduced the phrase to me, the green room syndrome, mm. where you know, you're talking to a politician one-to-one -one behind when the cameras are off and they're completely on site. Yes, yes, you're right, you're right, completely. And then the minute the camera goes on, it's like, we must be tough on drugs, we must blah, 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 you know, it's, and it's very frustrating, but it is changing. It is changing. I mean, the Global Commission always frustrates me, because if you look down the list of who's on the Global Commission, it's the ex-Secretary General of the United Nations, it's the ex-President of Poland, it's the ex-President of Switzerland. But the fact that we've had three actual presidents and prime ministers calling for this ungas from Latin America, and more and more, like with, with Nick Clegg, you know, that was important in the UK setting, because he was able to, to kind of um, advocate for this agenda as well. The, the taboo about this, the political taboo, is being broken down slowly. The polls are showing us, whenever there's a poll, I mean, it always depends on how it's worded, as these things do, but the polls are showing us that public support is greater now than it's ever been before. And it's going to come to a point, I mean, basically, the politicians will only start saying things publicly when they believe it's going to win them more votes than lose them. And the cold, the cold fact of day is, they look at this problem and they see, well, drug users don't vote. That's the cold fact that they will see, and it's this short-termism that uh, Professor Rogers was talking about. But it, so it is changing. We really are seeing a change. Um, and we, it's just up to us all now to just keep nurturing that. And eventually, you know, I mean, okay, one of the classic things is, is how, how much more comfortable politicians are now talking about their own personal history of drug use. We've moved beyond the Clinton, I did not inhale nonsense. And we've now got the US president openly admitting that he took coke and openly admitting that he smoked cannabis. And a lot of UK politicians also openly admitting that they use drugs. So it, 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 it's small things, but these are all steps in the right direction. Um, for the second question on Port oh, sorry, the first question on Portugal, um, there's, it's been extensively studied. Okay, studied by people who want it to work and by people who don't want it to work, as you can imagine. The things we know of the H, it's had a huge positive impact on HIV transmission, a huge positive impact on overdose. I mean, Portugal was one of the worst countries in Europe for overdose, and now its its rates have plummeted. Um, crucially, it has not increased drug use. This was one of the big fears that everyone had, that if you decriminalise drugs, everyone's going to be off their faces and no one's going to turn up for work. It just didn't happen. It was, there wasn't this kind of drug apocalypse that, everyone, that people were worried about. And so that's one of the crucial things. Drug use itself hasn't increased. Access to treatment has increased massively. And that's another important point. By treating people with a different paradigm, you're able to bring them into health services and bring them into support rather than banging them, you know, banging them up in jail. So on a, from a health perspective, it's had, a, it's had a very positive impact for Portugal. Um, not, and, and like I say, not least because they also reinvested in health as well. And finally, on the, the USA and UK, I mean, they're not, <laughs> credit to them, they are not the main blockages at the United Nations level, not anymore. Um, but they are certainly not enablers, as you say. 
Um, the UK, the, the European Union always has an agreed common position on these things, and it's it's okay to a point, but it, it doesn't want to discuss changing the conventions. That's kind of something that they've all decided as a group of 28 countries. That's that's the position they want to take. Um, and in that way, Latin America have really kind of taken the lead. They've kind of picked up the baton in terms of pushing for this agenda. I mean, it's really difficult when it's a consensus-based system. All you need is one country to block it, and Russia are quite happy to play that role most of the time, and, and you know, ably supported by Pakistan, Iran, and other countries at the United Nations level. So we just have to keep working on these countries. The USA's position has, has changed a lot in the last decade. It has changed a lot, forced in part by, by domestic developments, but it has changed. It's still not where we'd like it to be, but it has changed. The UK, they have a very strong position on some issues like the death penalty and harm reduction, but they don't want to talk about changing the conventions. You know, there's a limit to where, to how far they're willing to go. We just have to keep working with all these governments, and the debate as a whole has to keep creeping forward. That's the crucial thing. And then we have to work with European governments to, to do the national, like I said, the real change is gonna happen at the national level. So, you know, you've got Spain, for example, considering policy changes and you know I think once it happens at the national level with a number of European countries then the European Union position can change and then again it will be another step in the right direction so we're getting there but it's sorry. Yeah. yeah yeah can I just throw in a couple of other things there is a danger of focusing in too much on 2016 it's going to be passing show on one level there is another big event that takes place in 2019, which I think is going to be more important. And in terms of gearing up for change, when California legalizes, and the likelihood is that it will next year, legalize and regulates cannabis, California is, the, is, is not only a, a state of the US, it's the eighth largest economy on the planet. It's a, it's, it's, this is massive. So when California goes, the, 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 the likelihood is that there will be a, a big domino effect. Um, one thing, just in terms of where the US is at, um, uh, they are now, for many, many years, the US used the conventions, the international <coughs> prohibition-based conventions, as a stick to beat countries who wanted to move beyond the orthodoxy. Bless him, William Brownfield, who I quoted earlier, the, the Assistant Secretary of State in the US State Department, now says that the conventions are flexible that you can legalize all drugs under these conventions which are fundamentally prohibitionist. Now it's utter bullshit, but what it speaks to is the difficulty that the US has found itself in, in terms of maintaining the orthodoxy, the geopolitical glue that prohibition serves in the world, and at the same time seeing these domestic shifts. A couple of other things really to throw in. Do take a look at the World Development Report 2011, which is full of, of, of uh, uh, negative analysis of the drug war and actually has a legalisation debate contained in it. Um, the other thing is just to look at where change comes from. And whilst a lot of us will be bought into an idea of the, that, that we need to get public support and once you put pressure on politicians they'll shift, on this one may not be the case. Clearly that can happen in the US because they have these statewide ballot initiatives. But in terms of, of where change comes from. The World Economic Forum has now assessed um, lousy drug policy as a threat to doing capitalist business. Now that's a problem 
It's not a problem for governments, and it's, doesn't, it's not a democratic move, but when capitalists reckon, corporates recognize that this is a problem, they might well move. The other one is security. Whilst a lot of nation states don't give a fig about their citizens and health and development and all those, those, those good things, they do care about themselves. So national security, the level of blowback that is now coming from the war on drugs is so huge that it's impacting on them. And that's the point that it might change. Yes. I'll just add really briefly uh, one, just, just, just one thing. And it's, it's about this question about why, uh, why people don't speak out, why politicians don't speak out, why organisations don't. And a uh, brief anecdote from the experience of trying to get uh, my own organisation, Health Poverty Action, to get involved with the debate. It was once, I was once at a meeting, I think it was with the UDEBS, and it was suggested that um, we'd never be able, uh, it was, it was uh, somebody was trying to make a film on, uh, uh, on the problems of the war on drugs. Uh, and he said, oh, he would love to get an international development charity to work with him. He said, well, no, we'd never get that. We'd never get an organisation uh, from that sector to speak out on it. And I'm not, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're the, um, we, you know, we're certainly not intimidated by controversy. We're the organisation, we're the generation born to end poverty. You know, we revel in speaking truth to power. And when I was trying to get the, the, this report through my own board, I discovered that you know the fear of the Daily Mail article was much greater in the sector than I, I, I previously thought, and it was actually quite a long, caused a lot, a, a lot, a, a lot of hassle. And yet, you know, anyone involved in it knows there was no. I mean, apart from that, I would love the Daily Mail, the, the profile, but, but it was uh, you know, but there was no danger of it happening. You know, there was no risk. So you know, people are afraid of a monster that isn't there anymore. But I think, I think. The two reasons that uh, organisations and often uh, in it, politicians and individuals don't get involved, one is that inherent fear, you know, you often self, um, uh, you, you restrain yourself more than the circumstances require you to, the lobbying act on, the, on charities, you know, people uh, scares them and they actually constrain themselves far more than the law requires. And on, on, on drugs, you know, there's nothing to be scared of. It's an opportunity, actually, people to come out and get passionately involved and support your organisation, I think. But and you, don't, you do that by some coming out of the closet and demonstrating it. You're demonstrating there's nothing to be scared of. You come on in, the water's fine. And the other thing, though, that we must never underestimate is just simply organisational inertia. Uh, you know, to get an organisation to change its plan for the its strategic plan for the next two years and start to work on a new issue is bloody hard. You know, and and. Uh, drug policy isn't an issue that most organisations have got an internal advocate for. You've got somebody working on climate change, you've got somebody working on trade, you've got somebody working on tolling tax. We haven't got those internal advocates yet. So the challenge to us, individuals, one of the things we're good at on the, we uh, on the left is organising. The challenge to us is to be those internal advocates because there won't yet be a profession in most organisations that have got that need for responsibility. Let it be us. You know, let's look for what's winnable in organisations we're involved with. I have a supporters writing letters, well, I might be bloody involved, they won't come to the meeting yet. They haven't, can't say they haven't got enough staff to send anyone along. You know, write and ask them questions. What are you doing to prepare for ungas? You know, we can lobby, but if we are those that are professionally involved, we're going to lobby the other, other way. Just think what would be winnable. You know, what step to get the organisation or you know, a local trade union group, anyone involved in this issue can, can we take as individuals? Thanks, Martin. And we're just going to take a couple more questions, or as many as we can fit in the time. So, gentlemen, about first, you have the first. Yeah, uh, four. Yeah. 
in the Daily's presentation, you had a picture of the Global Commission. We also referenced the 1998 declaration that we've been doing in the drug free world in 10 years. <coughs> we think it's copy and done. We said those words. And it's now in the Global Commission. Picking uh, up on great talk this morning by Professor Rogers, we talked about trident. I don't think we're going to get from where we are now to a regulated drug world, just like we're not going to get from where we are now a trident to no trident. We can ask you to keep your questions brief because we've got about seven more minutes. And um, the gentleman in the pale jacket just there. Yeah. Um, I'm part of the world, part of the in California, where I'm told it's the centre of animal triumph. And the community I live in over the last ten years has gone through this change. Uh, to, and it's the costs because marijuana growing is the main industry and it's not taxed, it's not regulated, it's the cost on culture, criminality and the environment and you're seeing people shift and it, you know, the last time it was just a last minute failure of no but yeah. it was quite clear. Yeah. And the other thing is the financial driver. People are going bust, and there's a lot of money around there that is not taxed. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's to do with the change, and then the consequences internationally are the same. Okay, thank you. I should take the lady in from here and then the lady there. I think that's probably what we've got time for. Thanks for your presentations and for talking um, about the discussions that are going around on the health benefits of legalisation. I just wondered how much discussion there is on the um, the impact that legalization might have on organized crime itself, especially factoring in other types of, like the diversified um, sources of income and other types of trafficking and how, how drug policy <coughs> legalization, um, <coughs> the use or the supply and production as well, um, uh, what kind of impact that would have. Okay, thank you, just the lady here. I was just wondering where, looking at capitalism and opportunities, where the major pharmaceutical companies are in this space. Because we're all seeing the writing on the wall, and behind closed doors, people are coming to understand where we're at. Where's the commercial interest there for the drugs companies in terms of prescription, mm -hmm. dispensing, retail? I think there's one final question from the lady over here. That's for you. Hi, I'm Katja from Germany. We are facing the big problems with refugees right now, problems, whatever this means, and I would like to um, have you said something about the link to, of the war on drugs to refugees and how we can use this in um, terms of making policy on this, uh, on the root causes of the, the flight We've got about five minutes, guys. <laughs> so if I could whiz through the, the the money side. Obviously, is enormous. It's not as big as that market because these these the market is grossly inflated because of the added values of working in a, a, a high risk environment. So the margins come down. So it's not about capturing quite as big a market as 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 as, as it is on there. And and that has to be the case because otherwise you couldn't eliminate or significantly reduce the illegal market unless those margins come down. Um, 
In terms of where Big Pharma is up to, uh, we know it's on their, their, their scenario plans. The question is, how much are they willing to step forward and do it? Now, given the reputation of these lovely organisations, it's, diff it's, it's politically difficult for them to move in and go, yeah, and we, we want to embrace the cocaine market or the ecstasy market. But I'm sure behind the scenes, things are happening there. But what we do know is venture capitalists are moving in certainly on the cannabis market, uh, big time. And so my colleague Steve, who was in Jamaica, you know, and there's pictures of him with um, Rasta um, small-scale farmers um, in this workshop talking about um, legal regulation. Um, and out of the picture, there are, you know, the big cannabis businesses um, who were at that meeting circling like vultures. Um, and that whole issue, this speaks to the whole issue again of why the development community must engage with this. Because if we don't, it will just be left up to venture capitalists and corporates. So that's, that's a real reason for stepping in. Um, on organized crime, clearly they have di diversified portfolios. They're just grey corporates. And as we saw earlier, HSBC are organized criminals. You can quote me on that. <laughs> yeah? There isn't a kind of organized crime and, and um, legitimate. There, there is a gray area where everybody's bang at it. It's so vast, it's going through all banks. It's not just HSBC, it's Barclays and RBS and the whole kit and caboodle. Um, and that, that if we look at what happened in, uh, at the end of alcohol prohibition, the mafia, the US mafia, which had been built on alcohol prohibition, moved out of, they just weren't involved in the market, the margins had come down, and then they went into all the other things that they were doing. Um, what we need to do is some scenario plan to, to really examine this. And I, uh, what I would like to see is people who are experts in organized crime doing that scenario plan, but also talking to the people who, the big people in organized crime about what the hell they're gonna do when this goes. Because you can, you can have those conversations in the same way that we talk to the IRA, uh, and other, other um, non-state actors when, when peace processes take place. Um, I, I, I don't know if you want to speak about the internal no. the, the displacement, it, but in Colombia it is massive. Um, the, the number of people who've been internally displaced and Mexico externally displaced and who's just going north. Yeah, I have nothing to add. Actually. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, I mean, on, on the organised crime issue, I mean, you know, yeah, no one is saying that if you legalise drugs, all these organised criminals are just going to become saints. You know, it doesn't work like that. I mean, then the, the, at the highest level, the groups that are trafficking drugs, it's not about the drugs, it's about the money. So they're also trafficking arms, people, ivory, timber, whatever it is that is going to make them money, they're trafficking it. Um, it's not that they're just particularly like heroin, you know? But what, we, what regulation can do is turn off a really significant cash tax for them. Because at the moment, this is such, a, such, a, such easy money for these organized gangs. And so one, one thing that we can do is at, least, is at least take away that part of the income. No one's saying that, that then that will stop criminality or stop organized crime. I think that's, that's you know, again, I think that's impossible to do as long as there's markets there. But we can at least take away this part of that market and take away, take away the incentives, as Danny says, to being part of this market. I mean, in Prohibition, there was the whole discussion, in the alcohol Prohibition, of will, will, the, will the moonshiners move into alcohol production? And it turned out not to really be the case. You know, once, once the companies and the industry got involved, you, saw, you soon saw the moonshiners and the others, even, even those who had attempted to shift to legitimate use, 
we're soon put out of business by 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 um, yeah you know the bigger, the bigger industry. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, we ha yeah we have to look at this planning, and and we've got to move away from a from a scenario where because we're slightly unsure of alternatives, we stick with a status quo that we know isn't working and that we know is doing so much harm. That's and that's that's part of this whole thing with, with the United Nations, US, UK. We're we're getting there. We're shifting past that. I'm afraid I think that's all we've got time for, but just to say a final thank you to our three speakers today and also to Matt up for hosting this session.